There's been a question that um, has continued to pop up in my mind as Jackie and I have been reading and discussing things that are of spiritual nature, of the Bible, of life, of culture, of how to understand, how to defend your faith, how to explain it, how to understand other people's viewpoints, perspectives, worldviews, religions even, so that I can understand where the fault is and there's a question that keeps popping up, and I wanted to share it with you. You've probably heard us say it, and uh, it's the uh, overarching title of a potential series that this has been turned into, but is, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? And I want to start off by asking you this question. Have you ever heard any of these following expressions? The world is full of sin. You heard that one. Or maybe this one, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Or what about sinners in the hands of an angry God? You heard that one before. Yeah, I kind of thought so. The The word sin, as much as we don't like it, and we'll get into why, it is important in understanding the Christian faith. But what do we mean when we say Sin, or, and this is really, or sinner. What does that look like? And another thing, and this is kind of another motivator that pushed me into this direction today. What is a mistake? What is a mistake? Can a sin and a mistake be used interchangeably? Because one of the things that helped me push this way on this message was I was reading a devotional and it seemed like they were using the word interchangeably. So it got me asking this question, What did they mean by that? And I did my best to understand the way I could. I hope this makes sense to you today. I hope you get something out of it. I do have a purpose behind this message, but God usually has a different one hidden in each and every one of us. And I hope you get that out out of it as well today. But today we'll be looking at the Bible for our initial understanding of this three letter word sin. We'll begin with its use in the Old Testament, move to the New Testament, and then look to find out where this word mistake pops up in Scripture, if it even does. But my goal for this message is that we gain an understanding of these words. And it is, with, it is my hope that with that understanding, as a starting point, you and I can better answer the question when someone asks you, when you start using religious terms like sin, and they ask you, what do you mean by that? You'll be able to hand them something a little bit more tangible than theological techno speak. Okay? So let's move into some examples from the New Test, or excuse me, from the Old Testament today. Uh, before we get into the definition of sin in the original Hebrew, yeah, I'm going to try to say a, a couple Hebrew words today. We'll see how that goes. Uh, please know that there are many words in the Bible that are used and then translated as sin. And many of them, especially in the Old Testament, are nouns or adjectives. Uh, Hawen can be translated as iniquity. You've heard that word before. Uh, And it could describe a crime or an offense. I'll give an example of that, what I mean that, from Scripture. Micah 2.1 says this, Woe to those who plan iniquity. To those who plot evil on their beds, at morning's light, they carry it out. 
because it is in their power to do it. So iniquity is a word that is translated uh, as sin in some form in the Bible. Another translation as iniquity translates, uh, gives the idea that it portrays sin as a perversion of life. So it's like, here's what life is. Here's the perversion of it, twisting it off, looking at it weirdly. And when we go down the Latin root of that word, I can't even say the word, that's why I didn't include it. We see that the word leads to the ideas of injustice, unfairness, hostility, and adverse stuff. It's, that's where we get that root from, iniquity. Now, adjectives describe nouns. I had to double check that one since I'm not an English student or major or minor or anything like that. Adjectives describe nouns. And the Hebrew word rasa translates as wicked. We find this in the King James Version, Jeremiah 5, 26. For among my people are found wicked men. They lay wait as he, as he that setteth snares... They set a trap, they catch men. Well, today's focus is on this word sin. But I want to look not at nouns or adjectives, rather, though we'll get it, we can get into that another time, but today I want to look at verbs. I want to look at verbs. Because much of faith and life is about action. It's really good to know in your heart and life the truth, but how do you act on it? How do you do or not do? So we need to understand action words. We need to understand verbs. And so we're going to look at a few of these uh, from the original uh, Greek. I was really geeking out earlier in the week. I had, I had the Vines Dictionary. I had my Strong's Concordance. I say my, it was probably Jackie's or mine. I don't know. And I was looking at these things. And so If I sound a bit book geeky today, just bear with me. I'll try to get a little bit more interesting, perhaps. Um, But the word for transgression is uh, chabar. And again, forgive me, I didn't study Hebrew in college. And the internet can only teach you so much in a week. (laughs) This word means to transgress. And then the question, the title of the series, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by when you say transgress? Well, that's a great question. Well, transgress has this sense of passing over or crossing a boundary line. And I'd like to illustrate that a little bit. I don't have a boundary line, but I have something to help us visualize it. A basketball, right? Um, If you've ever seen basketball before, if you've ever begun, I started thinking about basketball. And it's played on a solid flat court, solid ground. And there's baskets on either side, so that's hence the basket and the ball. But there is this space. A giant rectangle is painted on the floor, straight lines all the way around, and it is the outline of the field of play for the game. It says that basketball takes place within this rectangle, okay? And everything outside of the rectangle is where things that aren't basketball take place. This is where basketball takes place. Step outside that line, that's where things that aren't basketball takes place. And so if you step outside that line, you are literally out of bounds. I I went to the NBA's website to understand those rules because they do change every once in a while. If you are touching the ball when you are out of bounds, 
that out-of-bounds nature has now transferred to the ball, even if it's over the line, and it is out-of-bounds. Interesting. So, and what happens when the ball is out-of-bounds and it's touching some, somebody who is out-of-bounds? Well, there's a penalty involved of some sort, and what happens usually is the person whose team it was, who touched it last when it went out-of-bounds, the other team gets the ball, and they get to have possession of it. So where do we see this, in, in this uh, situation of boundaries expressed in the Bible? Because nobody's playing basketball in the Bible, right? Well, Numbers 14, 41 in the ESV says, but Moses said now, it says, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? And then also, and here's Judges 2, verses 20 through 21. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, that guy. Yeah, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers... And have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. That's the ESV as well. Uh, NIV, however, has a take on on that word that is used transgressed. Transgressed is, they translate it as violated. They violated my commandment, God says. The promise was broken. Have you ever heard somebody ever promise something to you? Pinky promise, up and down. And then they broke their promise. There's a break in relationship that occurs usually. And here's what God says. The boundaries were crossed that ought not have been crossed. The people sinned. They stepped out of bounds. There's a consequence. There's a penalty. Now, another interesting word, another verb for sin in the Old Testament in Hebrew is kretz. And the usage of this word varies on context, but most notably it is to miss the mark, to miss the mark. Interestingly enough, the best example for this word and where we get the idea of missing the mark comes from Judges 2016. That's why I was confused. I wasn't sure what chapter I was reading earlier. Here we go. It says, among these soldiers, there were 700 chosen men who were left-handed could preach a whole sermon on this whole verse, by the way. <laughs> We're left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And for those who aren't reading along in their Bible, or who think I said a bunny rabbit, no, H-A-I-R, not like the stuff I have on my, or I don't have on my head, uh, not H-A-R-E. Could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. The example says, here's the expression of missing the mark, and then they kind of tell you the opposite of what it is to miss the mark. They say, this is, this is a group of people who don't miss the mark. They hit their mark, and it's a very small mark, and they're very good at it, it seems. Um, and so I don't have a slingshot, but I, 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 I do have something else. I'm not a sporty guy. I've never played basketball outside of junior high. Uh, Jackie uh, was asked to join the church softball league when we lived in Oklahoma. 
and I just sat on the sidelines and recorded play-by-play for my own personal amusement. Um, So don't get into a whole lot of sports, but I do enjoy sports where you can occasionally pick up just for the fun of it. Occasionally pick them up. Uh, Archery is one of them. I'm going to show you something. Maybe you could have just used your imagination. Like, oh, I can't see it. It's camouflage. Very funny. Um, This is a a very special bow. My dad gave it to me when we were out visiting. And we dropped the girls off. And it has a whole other uh, story to it, and I'll I'll share it another day. But this is a hunting bow. And... um, Anytime that there was an opportunity at church camp, and being a children's and a youth person uh, in the past, anytime I had a chance, I would go uh, and do the archery range or the slingshots or whatever, because that was always those fun little outdoor activities that they had at church camp. And so that was a lot of fun for me. I loved it. In fact, one year, uh, I shot an arrow over the barn because I wasn't aiming very well. We'll get into that here in a moment shot it over the backboard barn, went, and I had to go and find my arrow after we're all done. I have this picture of where my arrow landed. It landed in a frisbee golf uh, basket, like a hole where the frisbee golf is. Those chains, it went right through two chains. I wasn't aiming for that, so that's a problem. I accidentally invented a, a new sport that I don't think anybody's gonna pick up. But anyway, archery is a lot of fun. Uh, and, it, and it can be really, really cool. And when um, we were in Texas, I co-led a caravan program, a caravan group of kids, and they were working on their archery badges. So through that, I got a chance to learn some of the skills of archery because my co-leader actually had all the bows and arrows and she brought them and, and we're, we're training us all in, in the things. And there are different steps. Man, this is super heavy, actually. Um, there are different steps for learning how to, before you fire the arrow in order to do it right. The first one is to get the right stance. This is, this is classic in every sport, really. I mean, uh, it's when I was reading how to do golf when I was a junior higher, I was like, oh, I'm gonna read that one guy who's really good at it. Like, it's all about your stance, where your toes point. Uh, I'm sure in bowling, it's a lot similar too, where you have to, you know, you can't just like stand sideways and run towards the thing and just throw the ball. It's, there's a lot to do with stance. Thank you <laughs> for that. Anyway, so you have to have your stance right. You're looking straight down there. You're looking at the target, and you, you set your stance to point perpendicular to where the target is. The next one is to knock. Now, you don't have a tip on this arrow, okay? And I'm not going to pull it back. I want you to understand that. Uh, there's, I don't, I have never taken a gun safety course, but I know enough about gun safety to know that it translates to anything that could be used as a weapon. So I'm not gonna pull this back, but I want you to understand what's going on here. There's this thing called knock, which is when you just insert the arrow into the string. That is what that expression is, to knock the arrow. And when you, so you have it set, you have your stance set, you've knocked your arrow, you draw back your uh, bow and anchor it. And when I'm anchoring the string, again, I'm not pulling it back, you anchor it around here, And then this is the hardest part. The next one is aiming. To aim, to make sure that all of these are lined up just so, so you're going right at where you want the arrow to go. You have to aim at the target. 
And then the last one is probably one of the most rewarding parts is to release the string. But you can't just go like this. If you release it and let your hand go with that, that's not good. So what you do when you release the string is it's called follow through. You hold it there until your arrow hits its target. So there's stance, you put the arrow in there for knock, you draw it back and you anchor it, you hold it in place, you aim at the target, you release the string and you follow through. You wait until the arrow lands before you go and do the next thing. These are all the steps that are important at being successful in archery. But aiming is such a hard part of it. Because if you think about it, when you're aiming at something, when you're just doing it for target practice, targets are generally known as static things. You have a big square thing with a round thing in the middle, it's a target. You might have that target on a deer-shaped fake deer thing or a turkey. Church camps I've gone to before have those, and they're fun to shoot at. Not very good at hitting them, but they're fun to shoot at. Um, but in real life, if you're hunting an animal, it might be on the move. So you're trying to pull back and hold that aim steady, but it's also moving. So you've got a lot of tension and energy built up back here as you've got your bow pulled. It's all stored up. It's waiting just to be released. Well, let's relate back to Judges 20. And we're told that 700 guys could aim at a hair. I can't even see a hair from that distance. Could aim at a hair and not miss. They aimed at their target. Should be no surprise, but everyone who does archery does so with the intention of hitting the target. They may be that deer or that turkey or just the thing down the range, but you want all your energy that you're pulling back to go straight into the target. And this is the defining factor that we'll come back to. There is an intent implied when we refer to missing the mark. They're intending to aim at what they're aiming at. They're not just saying, well, I'm going to hit the target down there, and then they shoot off in a different direction. This makes sense. Now let's look at the New Testament. When we do, we come to find out that New Testament authors were keenly aware, imagine that, of the concepts of the word sin in the Hebrew. And so when it turned to Greek in the New Testament, it seems like some of these words were shared definitions, specifically miss the mark. Uh, hamartia, har, oh, there's, hamartia is the base word for sin, okay? All of these different subwords, specifically now that we're using it as a verb, it's hard for my brain to switch it, but hamartano is used many times in the New Testament, and it too means to miss the mark. But if you think that anyone who just misses the mark gets off with a slap on the wrist, because, I mean, think about that. That's what we think of, right? Oh, well, you just you know, missed your mark. Oh, shucks. You know, or try better next time. Well, I've got news for you. The examples of miss the mark are not too pleasant for the people who do. Go figure. Let's look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And it says this about the angels who sinned, okay? For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, and the Greek word hell is actually Tartarus, the Greek understanding of hell, 
putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. Then Peter goes on to talk about that. But the, the context of here is that they sinned, they missed the mark. That's the word that's being used here. And there's some sort of consequence. They're dire consequences. They take place even if you aim to do right and you still do wrong. Let's look at Matthew 27, 3 through 5, a pretty famous passage. It says, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned. There's that word again. And he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They they replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money at the temple, uh, into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. There seem to be dire consequences even when you acknowledge the wrong that you've done. Even when you look to try and make it right, to make restitution, it still doesn't wash away the sin and it doesn't wash away the consequences. The parable of the lost son, or some folks we have, we have gotten in our brain called the prodigal son, but uh, it fits more in line with the other stories before it to call it the, pro- the story of the lost son. But the lost son does show us a pattern for dealing with remorse and repentance correctly. And that is to do so with humility, identifying the sin that you've done. And he does it well. Luke 15, uh, 17 through 20. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. So far, what I'm seeing is that no matter what the word is used, what word is used, there are always some sort of consequences for the one doing the sin and for the one or thing that is sinned against. He sinned against heaven and against his father. There's always consequences for missing the mark, for failing to hit the standard. What's the standard? We'll get to that. The purpose, the point that God wants us to hit in life. But I did talk about mistakes, right? Mistakes in the Bible. Ooh, does that make you... Give it the heebie-jeebies. Well, guess what? The word mistake is not in the Bible. Historically impossible. Words could be similar to that, but that word was made up in the 1300s AD. And it's Middle English in origin. Uh, to, to talk about the word mistake, we've got to understand its noun and its verb. Noun, when it's used as a noun, is in error, Uh, Sorry, an error of action, calculation, opinion, or judgment caused by poor reasoning, carelessness, insufficient knowledge. When it's used as a verb, it means to understand, interpret, or evaluate wrongly. 
to misunderstand, to misinterpret. So though the word mistake is not in Hebrew or Greek, I can understand how modern meaning of this word has bled over into missing the mark and even transgressing. Mistakes are errors in what we do and how we think. But how mistakes are dealt with will tell you a lot about the wielder of the word. If one person wrongs another, sins against them, and says, oh, that was a mistake. I'm sorry for my poor judgment. You see, that is someone who at least understands repentance. If, however, a person says, oh, that was a mistake. Oh, well, these things do happen. Nobody's perfect. I'm only human. They acknowledge there was missing the, they were missing the mark, but they don't own up to the consequences for their choice, for their actions. Several years ago, and I could say that now that we've been here for over four years, I really had my feelings hurt at work. You see, I had a coworker who was attempting to be humorous, but he didn't stop to consider that making fun of my size would not be fun for me. I responded sharply and kind, letting him know that I didn't appreciate his attempt to be funny. His response? Oh, I'm sorry for what I said. I'm sorry for how what I said made you feel. Did you catch that? He was sorry for the consequence, my feelings being hurt and maybe even damaged a working relationship, but the action itself we want to put it in the context of sin, sin against me, he didn't perceive as wrong or sinful. Bugged me for a while. <laughs> and this is why it's so important to understand what we mean when we say sin. If we don't know what the problem is, how could we know the solution? We've got to understand what sin is in order to understand the solution, the Savior. So let's recap a little bit on these pieces. Old Testament, transgressions, willful disobedience to the boundaries of God. Oh, I stepped out of line. I I was told where the lines were at the beginning of this game. I studied basketball. I know how to stay on the court. That's how you score points. And people push and walk over boundaries every single day, don't they? Even if they know they're there. Missing the mark. Maybe you're willfully, instead of willfully disobeying, you're willfully attempting and failing to follow God's law and direction for life. Because again, nobody shoots at a, says, I want to shoot that bullseye on that target and then proceeds to aim elsewhere. That doesn't make sense. It defeats the purpose of the mark and the arrow. Or perhaps no one tosses the basketball to the crowd No, I'm not going to do it. They're not paying attention. And expects to get three points for it. Look how absurd that would be. Oh, I got three points as I passed it to the audience. No, that's not how things work. Building on these points, I started to have a conversation with Jackie earlier this week. We were walking through them. Literally, we were walking at the time. And she helped me to come to some, a, a very interesting conclusion where these things actually overlap. But I want you to help picture this with me here. So there's the willful disobedience of the boundaries. Oh, I'm going to step out of line. I knew this was here. I did it anyway. 
There's that I'm really trying, I'm aiming at the thing, I'm missing the mark. There's still consequences for both of those. But one of the things is that even sometimes when you know the boundaries are there, kind of like driving, when you know the boundaries are there, but you get, you lose sight of them because you're focusing elsewhere. Tunnel vision, hello? Can't see cars coming down the other direction. You might swerve into their lane. You lose sight of where those boundaries are. And you get off target. You get out of the court. However you want to take this illustration, help me out here in your own heart and mind today. But my question was, is like, well, how do we stop? How do we protect against drift and tunnel vision? It's to recalibrate. And the Bible has something to say about recalibrating your spirit and your, in regards to this. To understand where the boundaries are. To help us have our aim true. Psalm 119, well, I've got a few verses from the longest chapter in the Bible. I won't read them all, obviously. Psalm 119, 1 through 3 says this. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. And then if we jump down to 97 through 100, it says, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the, under, than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I love those last two verses are kind of funny because they, they, they also talk about their teachers and their elders. And by comparison, they're definitely doing the things that it sounds like the elders and the teachers are actually not doing, which is meditating on the statutes and actually obeying the precepts. If we look at Psalm nineteen thirteen. The writer, the psalmist says to the Lord, keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me, then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgressions. There's a desire, there's a willfulness to stay away from sin. Psalm 32, one through five, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. There's a solution for this sin problem. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through all my groaning all day long. Oh, woe is me. (laughs) For day and night, your hand was heavy on me and my strength was sapped. And the heat, as in the heat of summer. Have you ever felt so down on yourself? You're sapped, your energy is gone. You're just negative thought after negative thoughts. Like the world is blah, blah, blah. There's no, there's no hope. Or you're stuck in your sin and it just keeps piling on. And five, verse five is just a really good. He says, then I acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Again, Psalm 32, one through five. 
If we don't know what the problem is, we can't know what the solution is. We must recognize that sin is not simply a whoopsie moment. An error in judgment or a lack of information. That's what a mistake is. And in this cultural climate today, we can't water down what sin is by confusing it with mistakes. Sin is crossing an established boundary line. Sin is missing the mark, missing the standard that was set up. And the standard is Jesus. And you can say, how can we be like Jesus? How do you stay in bounds while playing basketball? How do you hit a bullseye? You remember and you review where the boundaries are. You aim and focus at the center of the target, being aware that all the other rings and things and distractions all around you, you aim. You let your arrow fly. You shoot the ball. You have faith and hope that your projectile will land where you aimed. But that hope and that faith is not in you or me or our skills or abilities. It is in the one that is the standard. If you hit the target, it is because of Christ. His Holy Spirit helps us to say no to sin. His Spirit helps guide our steps. Our part is to step up and take our stance, to knock the arrow, to pull it back, to recognize the boundary lines and choose to stay within them, to fire that arrow. And by his grace, we can and we will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the word sin, though it only has three letters in our language, can be a confusing and complicating thing where some whole societies have tried to erase its existence. They can't escape it. It's ingrained in our very nature from our parents, Adam and Eve, and their initial sin. And you want to come into each and every one of our lives and deal with the initial sin problem that always leads to an actual sin problem where our human sinful nature leads us to choose continual sin that drives a wedge between you and us. Holy Spirit, thank you that you can come and cleanse our hearts and lives, that you can help us aim and let our arrows fly true. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to show us what it really looks like to live out a life holy and pleasing to God. We pray this day that when we are asked a question, what do you mean when you say sin? What does that actually mean? Or I don't believe what that is. How could that be true? We have a little bit of information and a little bit of guidance But info is no substitute for a real life living out your word. So I pray for both, for my brothers and sisters today, myself included, that we may know in our hearts, know in our our hearts and our heads the truth, and that we may live it out in this world reflecting you, Jesus, today. We love you. 
In your name we pray. Amen.